Our text comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, so as I think about this particular passage of scripture and as I think about what it means to live in community, there's, there's an image that comes to my mind. Um, and this image may be surprising to some of you, may go over the heads of others of you who are too young to remember. But when I think of kind of this community that we see in the book of Acts and the longing to be in a community of people who love you, who understand you, who share things in common. Um, This is the image that comes into my head. Like I said, some of you are far too young to understand this. I myself was like five years old when this show went off the air. But for those of you who are not familiar with the shows of Cheers or those of you who avoided it because it was a show that took place in a bar and that just didn't appeal to you. Um, Let me give you the the basic understanding of this particular television show. Uh, So Cheers was was a a sitcom that took place in a bar in Boston called Cheers. Um, I think there's still a bar in Boston called Cheers right off the common there. Um, the, The premise of the show is very simple. Um, That this kind of ragtag, disparate, community took place in this unlikely place, which is a bar in Boston, right? These, these people from different walks of life coming together, uh, sharing things together, sharing laughs, sharing jokes, sharing sometimes love, um, all together in this unlikely place of a bar. This, this bar became a, a community where these people from different walks of life, there was a postman, right? And there was uh, well, some of you may be familiar with Frazier, right? There was a psychologist. There, and, and these people just came together. And, and somehow, like, those, those walls that separate us, you know, based on where we work or how much money we make, all sorts of things, like, they kind of came down in this bar in Boston. And these people had a wonderful and wonderful life together, a community. In fact, sometimes they would give up of their home communities and ignore their home communities to be at this bar in Boston, this community, this place where, as the theme song goes, some of you may be thinking it and humming it in your minds where everyone knows your name. Uh, the theme song to this, for this particular show, right, the, the hook was sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where you can see that the troubles are all the same. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. I don't think, again, until I was an adult, I watched a single episode of this, but I know the song. <laughs> now, right, the, the idea of sort of this, this longing and this, this wonderful community that, that, that is found in, in the unlikeliest of places certainly did not die um, in 1983 or 85 when this particular show went off the air. 
If we do a quick survey, and my survey, I'm sorry, ends just a couple years ago because I'm not real up on pop culture. Um, So those of you who are younger and much cooler than I am will have to just fill me in on what's current right now. But but we can look at kind of across the years and see these sort of like these shows that, that show this longing for community that exists in our culture. Okay, here's another one. This is mid, early mid-90s, right? This group of friends who just kind of lives life together. In fact, this show was touted as a show about nothing. And if you ever watched it or have watched many episodes, you realize it really is a show about nothing, right? They go and wait for food at a restaurant, right? That's the show. And it's It should be boring, but it's interesting, right? But it's this group of people who are not related, who just are a community, and it revolves around their community together as they eat, as they laugh, as they struggle together, as they sometimes get into bad situations together, as they mock others together, right? All these sorts of things of of this idea of this community of people who just share in their lives together, okay? Let's go a little bit later. Not too much, right? Some of you are familiar with this show, right? Again, we can think of the theme song, some of you, and and the theme songs are about this idea of people who come together and when things are good and when things are bad, they're together. They share in this kind of life and this journey together, right? This is a very unlikely one where people who don't make much money have wonderful apartments in New York City, but we'll get past the unbelievability of that, right? Or this is the most recent one I could think of. Again, I'm not cool. I'm not hip. I'm not up on pop culture. But again, another kind of show about an unlikely group of people who are coming together to share life and community, and somehow it works because they decided just to be together. This particular one, often by proximity, but they're doing life. Community is something that is sort of ingrained in the human soul. We long for community, and that, and that has very, very wonderful applications and aspects, and that has very, very disturbing applications and aspects, right? The longing for community can draw us into kind of relationships that with people that we don't think like us, don't act like us, and yet who make us better because they challenge us, right? Community can do that. Of course, community can also drive us in the other direction towards people who think like us and act like us into tribalism, into uh, racial stuff, right, that we've been talking about, that, that is born out of this idea that this community, I, I, I want to identify with this community. Community is something that is rooted in the human heart. And so as the church, we ask ourselves, as we should, if community is sort of ingrained in the human heart, what kind of community ought we have as a church? as a group of very unlikely people who find ourselves together in one place at different times of the week, most often on Sunday. And we ask, what kind of community ought we be? Should we be a cheers community? Sorry, our bylaws of our particular denomination, we don't drink, so that's not going to happen. We're never going to have a bar in our foyer. I'm sorry, if that's what you're hoping for, I can't help you on that one. But the kind of cheers community of collegiality, we certainly, I don't think, want to be that kind of insular community where everyone who doesn't think like us or act like us is bad. What kind of community do we want to be? And of course, as a people who, who say we are formed and shaped by the story and the person of Jesus Christ, we also ask the question of what kind of community would God have us be? 
Because God loves the world. God sent his son to save the world. And God created the church that we might be a witness to God's love and care for the world. What kind of community ought we be? Are we a community that gathers on Sunday morning, sits theater style, and watches somebody else talk as we are doing right now? Is that our primary purpose? What kind of community would God have us be? Uh, obviously for me, since I chose the text and the scripture for this morning, um, you get the idea that I go to the community that God created. And the way that, that this community was formed in its sort of earliest stages. Now, I am not a go-back-to-and-be-the-New-Testament-church kind of person, right? There's a lot of things about their context that we can't do and maybe even shouldn't do. But we can see in the New Testament church the type of community that God desires to create when God's spirit is at work in us and in our midst. And it all starts on the day of Pentecost. That was supposed to change quicker. So we're told this story right before our text today about this day called Pentecost. Pentecost is, is, a, is a Jewish holiday 50 days after Easter, or after, for them after Passover, but for us after Easter. So on Pentecost, what had happened is that about 120 of Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, had gathered together because Jesus had told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the promise. Wait for, for the thing that I have promised to do among you that will really catapult you into the mission of God in the world. Right? It's interesting, Jesus didn't say, all right, now go and do. He said, go and wait. And so for 50 days, the community of God kind of got together. Those who followed Jesus, they would get together, they'd eat, they'd pray, uh, they'd go to the temple, they'd worship. And then on Pentecost, something happens, right? The Spirit of God comes as, as, the, as the, the author of Acts visualizes it. The Spirit of God comes in, in, in the form of, of tongues of fire that kind of spreads out. It's a, it's a fantastic and amazing story that we'll go over again in just a couple of weeks on Pentecost Sunday. Right, so we read this story and, and we see that the Spirit of God comes upon the church, right? Before it had just been a bunch of people together in Jesus' name, talking, gathering, praying, hoping, waiting, right? Then the Spirit comes and it says that it fills them. And, and the story goes that they kind of go out of the, of the room they're in and they begin to just talk about who God is and what God has done as the Spirit gave them ability is what it said. And so they begin to go out there and then, and then Peter gets up and, and as the spokesman kind of for the disciples, he, be, he gives a sermon that day, right? He just talks about who God is, what God had done in Jesus Christ, that God had, had sent Jesus Christ, that, that Christ had ministered and witnessed and, and proposed that God is desiring God's kingdom to come. And then, and then people got mad and killed him. And then God raised him from the dead, right? Peter tells this story that is awesome and, and crazy and near on unbelievable. And what we're told about Pentecost Sunday is that that day there were 3,000 people added to the community of Christ. Let's just do the numbers here real quick. Started with 120. Ended that day as a community of 3,120. That's a pretty good day, right? But imagine the chaos that that created in this group of people. Right, a group of 120, you can be close, you can be intimate, and then all of a sudden, 3,000 added. And, and we have to ask, what kind of community is the Spirit creating? What are they going to do with all these new people? How are they going to live life together as a community that, well, they could fit in one building, but now they can't. 
right? So just think about it a moment. If we had 3,000 people at, I mean, if we had 400 people added to our, if we had 200 people added to our number today, we wouldn't be able to fit in this room. The chaos. What are we going to do? How are we going to answer? How are we going to respond? How is this thing going to go forward? What kind of community is God going to create out of this people who we are told are from all over the world? Right? Persians and Medes, Elamites, right? People from Cappadocia, like all over the world, people were in Jerusalem. And now these people who spoke different languages, who had different customs, who had different contexts, all are together. And now they're the thing called the church. And so we ask, what kind of community does the spirit want to create in their midst? And that's where we get Acts 2, 42 through 47. Right? Immediately after kind of this 3,000 were added to their number, this is what we're told was going on immediately following that. This is the earliest iteration of the Spirit at work in the group of people who claim to follow Jesus Christ and be inheritors of God's kingdom. That's what we read in Acts 2, 42 to 47. A Spirit-breathed community. So we have a few marks of what that community looked like. The first thing we're told is that the, the community was devoted to the, to the teachings of the apostles. Right. So what does this mean? Devoted to the teachings of the apostles. Well, if we look at the apostles, they were the people who spent time with Jesus. Right? At the time, to be an apostle, you had to be someone who had spent time with Jesus. Right? So these were the ones who had learned at the feet of the rabbi Jesus who had spent time with him, who had talked to him, who had been able to ask him questions, who had had those questions answered, who had, who had gone out on, on, on sort of missions with him. And so the people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not because the apostles were great orators, perhaps, not because the apostles were anything really particularly special, other than the fact that they were the ones who had the story. They were the ones who had the story of Jesus. They were the ones who were taught by Jesus. And so they just were teaching it to others. People believed that they were the ones who could help them understand what it meant to live as a person who followed Jesus, as a person of the kingdom of God. So when I think about the modern church and I think of devoted to the apostles' teachings, what I don't mean is that you should be devoted to me or any other pastor for that matter. Right? That, that it, you should just be like hanging on every word that I speak. I know that every word I speak is not riveting. Right? My kids could attest to that. It, well, you all who listen to me on week to week can attest to that. Sometimes I'm not that interesting, and it's okay. So what I'm, I'm not saying is that, that you should hang on my every word, but what I do believe and say is that as we look at what the church ought to be, it ought to be a place where we care about the story of Jesus. We talked about this last week, right? It is the story of Jesus and nothing else that forms us and informs who we are. Now, I may on any given Sunday talk about what that might look like for us, but next week it might be Sheldon. And it doesn't have to be a pastor, right? It, it can be any of us who are talking about, who are sharing the story of Jesus. So, so you only listen to me in as much as I tell the story of Jesus, right? When I tell personal stories, you might go, that's interesting, or that might relate to the scripture, but it's not gospel, that's for sure. Right? They were devoted to, to learning from the apostles what it meant to be a person who followed faithfully after God. And, and that's what it means to be devoted to the teach. For us, it means we're devoted to the scriptures, right? We, we have stories about Jesus. 
And we are devoted to learning those. How else can we learn to live like Jesus if we don't study how Jesus lived? Right? I could devote myself to something, but if I don't study that thing, I will never live that way. Right? I, you might say, like, there have been sports I've been interested in in my life, but if I don't devote myself to learning and practicing that sport, I'm not a person who plays that sport, right? I like soccer. I played soccer a little bit. I still like soccer, but I don't play soccer. I'm not devoted to it. No matter what soccer gear I wear, I have... Here's a, here's a good example. I have a New Zealand rugby shirt, right? My parents lived in New Zealand for a while. Rugby's a cool sport, but I'm not devoted to rugby. Ask me if I've seen a rugby match in the last, I don't know, eight years. No, I haven't, right? If we want to say that we follow Jesus, if I want to say I'm a fan of the Seahawks, I watch the Seahawks. I'm not a fan of the Seahawks. I root for them when they play. I'm a fan of Jesus and I'm devoted to Jesus. And I believe that in order to do so and in order to live as he lived and more importantly, as he taught us how to live, we ought to read about him, study him. And and that's what I think what it means when it says that they were devoted to the apostles teaching is they were devoted to learning how to be people of God's kingdom, how to be people who followed Jesus as they were devoted to God's kingdom. Now that probably is not mind blowing to anybody in here. Right, that those who were part of the early church wanted to learn about Jesus. What is interesting is, is we, we see that, and, and that's something that churches a lot of times do well. Like we talk about Jesus, we talk about God, we talk about what it means to follow. Right? That, that's something we do really, really well in most churches. What's interesting is the other things that characterize their communities were things that we kind of go, huh, that's interesting. In this text, Luke mentions eating together no less than two times. Let's just think about that for a minute. So when when Luke talks about what it means to be a community called together by the spirit of God, like we think of like high and angels singing, he says they ate together. Eating is something that most of us do every day. Eating is something that most of us do at, at least three times a day. But Luke says that the early church was characterized by spending time around tables together. They ate together. So if you ever wonder, eating is a holy act. Now in the first century, what it meant when you ate with somebody was that you shared sort of their beliefs and politics and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So, so basically, to put this in contemporary, if I, if I were to, you know, sit down with... I just got to pick somebody. I don't know that. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to use a more extreme example, Dave. Um, let's say I was to get an invite with, uh, I don't know, the head of the DNC, right? Democratic National Committee, right? For me to accept that invite and sit down and eat with the head of the Democratic National Committee would imply in those days that I shared everything that they believed in, their politics, their religion, their morals, right? So the same would be true if I sat down with the head of the RNC, right? That, that would be the assumption that I, that I agreed with who they were and what they did and how they did it, right? That's not necessarily the case in our day and age, but in the first century, that's what it meant. You, you didn't really eat people, eat, you didn't eat people at all. <laughs> okay, let me just back up. 
don't eat people. Okay. Um, <laughs> you didn't eat with people who were of a different socioeconomic status than you. Right? Kind of the rule was you could eat one rung up or one rung down. To eat one rung up meant you kind of were being elevated in social status. To eat rung, one rung down means you were kind of throwing a bone to the people you're eating with. But you didn't eat with people of differing social status or economic status. So, so who you ate with was very, very important. And so this idea that this people from all over the world who were of different cultures, who were of different races, who were of different socioeconomic status, slaves and slave owners sometimes in that day and age, people who were rich, people who were poor, they would come together and they would share a meal together, which was really, really weird in their, those days. And so when Luke says that they ate together and they shared meals and they had glad hearts it meant that God was doing something to break down barriers in between people. They saw that what united them in Christ was far more important than any other barrier that they saw. And that they could work that other stuff out because Jesus united them together. The spirit of God united them together. So they ate together. We also say that they worshiped together. Right? They were in the temple daily, we're told. Daily. They were in the temple together worshiping. Yahweh God. Now, sometimes they were in the temple. Sometimes they were in homes worshiping together, right? The, the, this kind of gathering would have been largely unheard of in the first century, right? This is, this is a different invention of the Enlightenment. Largely, people would gather together for worship as they gathered together in homes. They would eat. They would worship. They would sing. They would share. And it all kind of had the context of being in a home, Together And again, the same kind of thing is true there. You didn't invite people into your home who weren't like you. You didn't entertain people who were too high on the social status or too low on the social status. You entertained people who were like you. But the church was different. It broke down those particular barriers that existed. One of the most interesting aspects for me that Luke mentions here about this community that is formed by the spirit of God is that they had everything in common. Don't blame me. Jesus said it. Well, Luke said it. It's the gospel. It's in Acts. It's scripture. That the early church, it said they had everything in common. And not only that, that if there was any needs among them, people who owned houses would sell it in order to meet the needs People who owned land would sell it to meet the needs of those who had less in the community. Again, this is not something that went on very often in the first century, right? You hung out with people who were like you, which means that people who were like you, they, they were landed gentry, they owned property, or they were slaves. But, but there wasn't that kind of like, oh, I'm up here and I see you and I'm going to take care of you. Now, pity was something, and there was almsgiving, sort of, but, but largely speaking, right, you took care of yours and your own, and you wanted to guarantee what was yours for your progeny, for your children, for your family, for your grandchildren. And, and, and you were someone because you owned land or owned possessions, right? Not terribly different from us now. But it says that, that this group was so engaged with one another and, and cared for one another so much that if there was somebody in need... Another person might say, hey, I've got this property and it's not doing me any good. 
I mean, it looks good to have on my, my name or on my, you know, my list of assets, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and sell that so that this person might have enough to eat today and tomorrow or might have a place to live. Right? So, so this was a big deal. They held everything in common. It was this idea that what is mine is yours, right? It may be amazing to you, but this is the most extreme example of that for myself that I can think of. It's for me to say that if you need skis, you can borrow mine. I care about my skis a lot and I've spent money on them. It's hard for me to loan them out. In fact, I never have. But that's what it meant. It meant that if, if I ski and I, I like to slide on snow, but you, have, you don't get to or you don't, can't afford it, it's mine. But since you want to use it and you share my shoe size or whatever, you can use it. I know that seems strange. I would much rather lend my car than my skis. By the way, if you need a car, you can borrow mine. But it's that idea of, sorry, this thing's bugging me today. Okay, I think we're all right. Um, But the idea that's going on there is that they saw needs and they were willing to meet those needs however they could. Their own personal possessions were not more important than the needs of the others in the community. And again, remember, we have people who are very, very rich in these communities, but we also have people who are slaves, who have nothing in these communities. And really, there's a story, this first part of Acts, is this, there's lots of these stories of, of, of selling to, to make sure that someone who had less could have enough. It wasn't acquisition for the sake of acquisition. It was, I have enough. I want to make sure someone else has enough. And so if I have too much, I'm willing to give it to those who don't have enough. So it was a community that was characterized by generosity, self-giving generosity, I might say. Now, in our day and age, we we practice generosity. Most of you give to the church, for which I am grateful, by the way. But that's not necessarily what was going on here. What was going on here, as we're told later, is that people would sell it, they'd give it to the apostles, to the 12, or to those who were in leadership, and they'd say, distribute this to those who need it. Right? So, so this giving was, was for the purpose of not perpetuating an institution, an institution the church I love, by the way, but it was giving for the sake of providing for others. It was a community characterized on all sorts of strange ways. In fact, it was a community that was so unusual that we are told daily people were being added to their numbers. There is a story, and we have actually evidence of this from Roman historians. There is a letter sent from an emperor to a bunch of kind of the, the priests of what, would, what was then called the imperial cult. Right? So, so in ancient Rome, they, they worshipped lots of gods, but they also worshipped Rome as a god, right? the imperial cult and the emperor as part of that. So, so he's writing to, to, the, to the high priests and the priests of, of the imperial cult, and he's, he's mad because guess what's happening? The Christians are taking all of the people. He writes to, to, to his high priest and says, be more like the Christians, because guess what the Christians do? They feed people, and not just the people they like who are part of their group. They feed anybody who comes. Right? Mind-blowing. And he says, guess what they do? 
They don't just bury their own. They pay for other people to be buried. So in that day and age, to be buried properly, if you weren't part of sort of a guild of some sort, if you didn't pay, I'm going to call it insurance, it wasn't that, but if you didn't pay into it, you weren't buried properly. And buried, being buried property was very proper. Buried properly was very important to people in the first century. And the emperor's like, the Christians are just, they're just willy-nilly burying people, giving them proper burials. Be more like the Christians. He gets mad at them because they're taking care of the sick. So, so again, epidemics happened. People got sick in the first century. And what would happen in cities when people got sick in the first century is that the people who had money would leave. They'd go to the countryside because cities were not very clean places. They'd get out so that they were free from kind of catching whatever plague might be moving through the city. But the emperor's like, those Christians, they're weird. They stick around. And they care for the people. Not just their own. They do that pretty well. But they're, they're so caring. They care for even people who aren't a part of them. Like there, there's this idea that even sort of the emperor at this point who considered himself an enemy of the church and of what the church stood for said, be more like them because they've got it right. All the people are coming to them because they're nice, they're kind, they're caring, they're loving, not just for their own, but for everybody. Now, he didn't speak that with reverence for the church. He said, they've got it right. We've got to copy them. I'm not suggesting that we should just be nicer, although we should be nicer. I don't think that's the answer. That's not a spirit-formed community. That's just a community of nice people. But when the spirit was in the midst of the early church, God did something that created this community that not only cared for and loved and enjoyed being with one another, but cared for and loved the people around them. It's the kind of community that we read about and go, man, I'd kind of like to be a part of that. Even as we're in the church, we might say, I'd kind of like to be a part of that community. Again, do we go back and say, well, you know, to be this kind of community, we just need to eat more. I'm all for eating more. I like eating. I like sharing meals together with all you. All y'all, is that a thing? I think that's a Southern thing, all y'all. And that's a great idea. But again, what's going on here is that this is a community that is formed by the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God in work in individuals and in community that's creating this kind of culture and ethos of generosity, of love, of care, of mutual concern. So yes, do we need to be more loving and caring? Should we eat together more? Absolutely, because community does not happen by accident. But that God desires to form even in us as we submit to God, the kind of community that people look at and they say, I may not agree with what they believe, but there's something going on in there that causes them to be this way. And we say that's the spirit of God in our midst. The spirit of God draws us together and does not push us apart. The spirit of God desires people to come and to experience the goodness of God in community not be isolated individuals. We have tended to push our spirituality inward at the detriment of the community. 
instead of allowing God to bring us together, sometimes with people we get angry at. I don't know if you've ever gotten angry with me. I hope so. I hope, I mean, just because I, I hope that we're human and have a close enough relationship. Because anyone I've had a relationship with, I've gotten angry with at some time. It's okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree with me. I hope you know that, but I think it should be said from up here. It's okay to disagree with whoever's standing behind, well, this music stand or at this pulpit. It's all right. We will disagree. We might even disagree theologically. I can guarantee you that you don't agree with absolutely everything I agree with theologically, and I don't agree with everything absolutely you agree with. And it's okay. Why? Because we are here around one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and the Spirit that brings us together. And we desire to walk together to find what it means to live as a people of God. And I guarantee you, you cannot do that without other people. We can't do it alone. If you're stranded on a desert island, okay, God's grace is sufficient. But when there's so many around, we can't do it alone. And so what characterizes the church in the early parts of its life together is this community life together. This, what in our kind of growing together stuff we're calling warm community. Not just a community of individuals who gets together to sing silly songs every week. It's not just a community who gathers together to listen to some guy speak and say, I'm going to take my own interpretation and go home. It's a community that shares things together. It shows genuine concern for one another. That, that notices when others are gone. That prays when others is hurting. Oh, gosh, my grammar is horrible this morning. That prays for others who are hurting. That eats together. Because walls are broken down around a table that cares for one another, that says, if, if you are going without, I probably have more than I need. And I desire to share that with you, that you might have enough. Because while there may not be enough in this world for everyone to be a billionaire, I can guarantee you there's enough for everyone to have enough, to have our daily bread as it is in the Lord's Prayer. That's the kind of community that, that we see in the first century. That's the kind of community that, that as we go on in the first, second, and third centuries, that the people are constantly calling the church back to, right? Calling back to, to what it means to live together in community, in shared vision, shared value, in shared love for one another and love for those around us. Would it be great? I know this is kind of strange, if there was a show about a community that happened in the church where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came because you want to go where you can know that the troubles are all the same. I mean, sometimes you just want to go where everyone knows your name. Wouldn't that be great if this was the place? Because I think that's what God desires for us. Whether it be in a large group gathering like this or in a small group you're a part of, a Bible study you do, a Sunday school class you have. We want to be the place where God's spirit has formed us such that the community is warm. We're glad to see each other. Glad to help each other. 
and sometimes even glad to be corrected by one another as we go, I need help sometimes to see the right path. Wouldn't that be great if we could sing that jingle about us? The chorus, the verses are weird, but the chorus for sure. Wouldn't that be great if this was that kind of place where all were welcome? All were welcome on this journey towards Christ and knowing God. Wouldn't that be great if this was that kind of community? As we close, um, we're going to sing a a, a final song. Um, And it's a song that was actually written by someone in this church. They no longer attend. They've moved. Um, But it was written by somebody in this church about the kind of community that they longed to see and did see in this place. And so we're going to sing this morning not necessarily as hooray for us. I mean, I should say hooray for Nate. It's a great song. But also in a way of saying, God, this is who we want to be. This place where all are welcome, that we might together follow Christ. We might care for one another. We might eat together with sincere and glad hearts. That we might be the kind of community that is spirit-breathed, where God is at work in our midst.